Welcome to Nancy's Bookshelf, a weekly program of conversations with North State and national writers from North State Public Radio. Now here's your host, Nancy Wickman. Guest today has worked as a translator for international adoptions of children from orphanages and as an interpreter for the 1996 Olympic Games in Atlanta. Viorica Marianne is now a professor of communication sciences and disorders and professor of psychology at Northwestern University. Since 2000, she has directed the university's bilingualism and psycholinguistics lab, funded by the National Institutes of Health and the National Science Foundation. Her work has been featured on NPR, PBS, BBC, NBC, CBS. The Eureka Marianne has now written a book, The Power of Language, How the Codes We Use to Think, Speak, and Live Transform Our Minds. The Eureka Marianne, welcome. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure to be here. Now, your name is unusual, and people might wonder, is that her real name? <laughs> yeah, it is unusual, and that's because I'm, uh, so my name is Viorica, Viorica Marian. I am originally from Moldova. Uh, Moldova is a small country in southeastern Europe that most people have never heard of until about a year ago. And unfortunately, uh, it has now been in the news quite a bit, not for good reasons. Uh, It's because of the war in Ukraine. Moldova is right next to Ukraine. It's a country between Ukraine and Romania. So um, my my name is Romanian. My family is uh, mostly ethnically Romanian. And um, because I'm from the part of Romania that was a Soviet republic, I grew up on a territory where Russian was the official language. So I grew up speaking Russian as well. Um, and later learned English and other languages, and that has shaped uh, my interest and and brought me to this book, The Power of Language. Well, a lot of times immigrants and authors change their names, so did anybody suggest you write this book under a different name? Oh, of course, I myself have agonized uh, what what author name to use on uh, for the book. Um just because it's a difficult name, it's hard for people to remember and pronounce, and it also uh, often elicits all kinds of biases and preconceptions. But in the end, um, I decided to just go with the name that my parents chose for me and um, make the best of it. It wasn't a choice that I had, but yeah, I did not change my name. Well, you even mention in your book that uh, a potential job offer or salary amount is influenced by a person's name. There is quite a bit of research on that, showing that if you send a resumes that are identical and all you change is the name or you change the uh, ethnicity of a person, it can lead to um, whether or not the person is hired, how much salary they offered. Um, people often... Um, there are articles in which they they express how their kids were not accepted to pre preschools because of a certain name. So there are certainly all these biases that uh, unfortunately we still associate with the name. Um, Viorica happens to be the name of a flower. Um, it's either violet or bluebell, depending on where you look. It's really close to the English violet. So my parents named me after a flower and my brother after a tree, both reflecting and contributing to all these gender biases that exist. But many writers, especially female writers, over the years uh, would often take um, male name pseudonyms to write their books. George uh, Sand comes to mind. She was one of my yeah. one of the writers I used to enjoy reading, and I didn't know that George Sand was not George Sand at all, but was a woman writing as a as a under a male pseudonym. Uh, there are of course lots of examples like that. So, or a woman uses initials so that people right. don't know what gender she is. Yes, that happens very often. So, yet another thing that we are uh, um, working towards changing, but at the same time, I can uh, only be grateful for being for living in a time and in a country where I could write uh, this book because there are of course many places in the world where women not only are not able to write books but are not even able to go to school or not allowed to uh, drive or do lots of other things so um, yeah it's uh, interesting. Um, 
you, since you spoke various languages, you were multicultural as well as multilingual, you could have chosen from a lot of different countries, but you chose to immigrate to the United States. And why was that, Verica? Oh, well, nobody has asked this question before. <laughs> uh, I've been uh, uh, on this interviews today. Uh, you're asking me uh, a lot of personal questions, which is interesting to, to talk about. Well, United States is a... Um, is a nation founded uh, on ideals, on certain ideals and principles and laws that uh, a lot of the world is uh, watching and considering as this uh, experiment in a way uh, for uh, the better angels of our nature. Um, it's an experiment in progress. It's a short it hasn't been around for very long, but as a woman uh, who wanted to uh, be a scientist and wanted to uh, study and dedicate my life to the pursuit of knowledge, um, to writing and researching, I couldn't think of a better place to go to than the United States. It's interesting that you ask because the United States um, is often referred to a place that causes a lot of the brain drain from other countries. Uh, it attracts um uh, many uh, scientists and entrepreneurs. And in fact, uh, when you go to, uh, like I was at an awards dinner at Northwestern not too long ago, and a lot of the people at that place, uh, that, that the dinners were originally from other countries. If you look at um, even Nobel Prize winners, the majority of them, um, well, the United States hold, holds a lot of those awards. And uh, most of them or many of them were born abroad and have contributed to this um, advancement of science and technology in this country. And the medical profession. So many of our physicians, I think 30 percent, are immigrants. Yeah, yeah, that's true. My parents were both doctors and um, a lot of a lot of of doctors in the United States uh, come from abroad as well. My guest is Viorica Marianne, and she has written a book, The Power of Language. And I mentioned uh, that you served as a translator and an interpreter. And some people may think, well, same thing. But there is a difference. And so um, if you were working as a translator, how does that differ from when you were an interpreter? Uh, so translation usually refers to translating written material, and then interpreting usually refers to interpreting uh, someone as they speak, as they you know, spoken language. Um, there is also simultaneous interpreting, where you are interpreting live as the person is talking. So you have to, at the same time, listen, decode their message, translate it into appropriate words, syntax, meaning, example stories, and and translate it. Uh, interpreted live into the other language while at the same time continuing to listen to the other language. So it's really uh, quite an amazing workout for your brain. Well, I was so impressed. I had the opportunity to observe a simultaneous translator at a court trial. And I just was amazed that she was able to repeat in a different language what she was hearing at the same time. But you didn't do that. You just served as an interpreter um, when you worked, uh, for example, the Olympic Games in Atlanta. I did both. I, I oh. did both, uh, but not to the extent as, you know, so... Um, Really, my my work has made has taken me full circle. Where a few years ago, I uh, was in Geneva um, for a dissertation defense of a student who studied the brains of simultaneous interpreters at the United Nations and and people who studied to be simultaneous interpreters, looking at how their brains process language and process information, and looking at the structure and function of their brains. Um, so I've had experience with both. It was a long time ago. I used it to help put myself through school, put myself through college. Uh, and now I mostly study people who speak multiple languages in their brains. Well, since you mentioned Switzerland, this is on a kind of a different topic about Switzerland because they speak several languages in Switzerland and that multilingualism lingualism, has an economic advantage. You tell us in your book that the difference is $38.15 billion into Switzerland's economy because they are so multilingual. That seems to be what the economists are telling us. They are attributing that particular uh, difference to 
the country's multilingual status and pointing out that other nations that are not as multilingual are losing out on some of those business opportunities precisely because of their um, difficulty doing uh, business in with countries where other languages, uh, especially smaller businesses, uh, are spoken. So my my book, The Power of Language, is structured into two parts. The first part talks about how learning another language and using multiple languages changes our brains and changes us as individuals, the consequences it has for our health, really at the personal level. And then the second part of the book focuses on the society and how uh, having a society that's linguistically bilingual, multilingual changes, uh, social things like the the example that you just mentioned. Well, you mentioned um, multilingual countries, and um, you tell us something that I think people would find very hard to believe, because as our population ages, Alzheimer's and dementia becomes more and more of a problem, and we're told, well, do crossword puzzles and do puzzles, but you say the incidence of Alzheimer's is lower in multilingual countries. And you tell us that multilingualism delays Alzheimer's and other dimensions four to six years. Professor, yeah, that, 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 uh, I, I would think when somebody hears that, they'll rush out and sign up for a language class right now. Isn't, isn't that amazing? I'm so glad you asked that question because that is one of the least known things about bilingualism and multilingualism. When, when people think about learning another language, the first thing that they usually think about is, oh, well, I'll be able to you know, use it when I travel. I'll be able to uh, order my un cerveza, por favor, when I go on vacation <laughs> to Mexico. I'll be able to you know, flirt with this uh, girlfriend or boyfriend I'm dating and they native language and I'll be so we think about this immediate practical benefits which are of course wonderful and lovely and a lot of fun and make life more interesting um, and we think about you know maybe increased social opportunities and increased uh, economic opportunities but one thing we don't know uh, is that bilingualism actually changes our brain in uh, ways that we have now discovered uh, is directly tied to um, protecting against some of the cognitive decline that we see oftentimes with aging and always with Alzheimer's and dementia. This is one of the most striking findings in our field, in my field of bilingualism and multilingualism, where we see that uh, nations that are bilingual or multilingual have a lower incidence of dementia. There is a direct correlation between the number of languages spoken in the country and the incidence of Alzheimer's. And on the individual level, if you speak two or more languages, you are likely to be diagnosed with dementia four to six years later than if you're monolingual. And four to six years is a pretty significant uh, amount of time. It can be the difference between... Uh, playing and spending time with your grandchildren and not even knowing them. Um, we don't know of anything else other than perhaps exercise that has an effect of this magnitude. Unfortunately, dementia is something that we don't have a treatment for. We all, myself included, are always, you know, anytime you don't remember something or you forget a word or you forget where something is, you I start worrying. <laughs> and uh, we don't we don't have a treatment for it. There are some lifestyle variables like exercise, like education that are known to offer some pro, uh, protective advantage as well. It turns out that bilingual as knowing two or more languages is one of the most powerful uh, lifestyle changes you can do. It gives your brain this uh, workout, this rich activity of juggling multiple languages. The example I like to use to help people understand how it works, uh, how it benefits your brain is to, to think, um, to imagine taking a certain road home every day. If you, for many years, have taken that road home after work, after you go to the store, or you go to the bank, or wherever you go, you take this road home until one day you discover, you know, you're on your way home and you discover that that road collapsed. If there are other roads that have been built over time that you know about, you simply, you know, detour change your navigation and you reach your home without any difficulty. But if that's the only road home you have, that's the only road that has been built or the only road you know of, then you have a problem. You can't reach your home. In a similar way, in your brain, if a certain area of the brain has been impacted by um, disease, by a stroke, by a disorder, disorder, by any, for any reason, 
if you speak two or more languages and you've built that richer network of connections where the words are tied to meaning and memories and experiences, all this lifetime of 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 building connections across languages, you have this alternate routes to quote unquote reach your home, reach your destination, uh, because of the the connections built in other languages, which enable now enable you now to functionally compensate for the anatomical deterioration in your brain. And um, this is known as um, cognitive reserve, also neural reserve, slightly different terms, but it's this reserve that your brain builds that allows you to cope better uh, with disease, even with extreme stress. Um, knowing multiple languages is uh, really contributor, a strong contributor to that. My guest is Viarica Marianne, and she is a researcher, and she has written a book, The Power of Language. We'll be back to continue our conversation after a short break. You're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. I'm Nancy Wigman. I'm Nancy Wigman, and you're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. I'm back with my guest, language researcher, Viarica Marianne. Her book is The Power of Language, How the Codes We Use to Think, Speak, and Live Transform Our Minds. So this is transformative. And you say, of course, the best time to learn a foreign language is when you're born, but most of us have missed that opportunity. But you say the second best time is when, Professor? The second best time is now. <laughs> it is never too early or too late to start learning another language. And if you do it uh, the right way, it might even be fun, and you can start reaping the benefits within a very short period of time. Well, I was uh, taken by a lot of the examples you get, uh, you've given us in different languages. For example, um, there's a word in Icelandic about the weather, and you say it's your favorite Icelandic word. <laughs> Do you remember what you said about that? Yes, yes. I don't know how to pronounce it, but it's the word that it's one word, a single word that encapsulates. It basically has this complex meaning that it's this feeling of guilt you feel for um, sitting for not enjoying the nice weather outside when, you know, you live somewhere where it's rare that you have nice weather outside and you're sitting in front of your computer, you're working and you're missing out on that nice weather outside. And I live in Chicago now. Chicago winters, winters are notorious. So oftentimes when it's a beautiful summer day and I look and I see how nice it is. And here I am responding to yet another work email. I think of that word and think about <laughs> the feeling that I'm experiencing at the time. Yeah, because I've experienced it, but I didn't know the yeah. word for it. Well, another, It's interesting. Different yeah, languages yeah. have different different words that yeah. sometimes don't exist in other languages that mm -hmm. I uh, use in the book. So the, the book, The Power of Language, it's really born out of uh, nearly 30 years of research that I have done studying with my uh, honors thesis in college to now being a professor at Northwestern and running hundreds of experiments with thousands of speakers of different languages, um, using my own personal experience and anecdotes and stories, but also uh, really drawing on empirical data from other labs around the world as well. You give an example, for example, different cultures see colors differently, or have more colors, or, or have a single word for color. For example, if we want to talk about the color blue, we have to add another word and say light blue or dark blue. But there are cultures that have separate words for this. You give that as an example. 
Yeah, I start with, so you started with blue because there are languages like Greek and Russian where different words are used for light blue and right and, and uh, dark blue. Uh, but it's not just light blue and dark blue. Uh, the labels we use for color and for other things in general very directly influence how we perceive reality around us. So if you think about the rainbow, for example, most of the time, if you're an English speaker, you think of the rainbow as having the set colors. Those are the colors of the rainbow we learn as children. That's how we draw uh, rainbows. And that's just what a rainbow is. But in reality, that is not what a rainbow is. A rainbow is comprised of an infinite number of colors. It's they all seamlessly changing with just by one one pixel from one color to another there is no a direct demarcation a direct categorical line between yellow and orange or orange and red and many languages don't have uh, a word for color orange so it's the entire hue of the color spectrum all the hues of the color spectrum are represented in the, in the rainbow but that's not how we think of the rainbow the the words that we know influence how we perceive the rainbow and how we perceive color. In other languages that have different color words, they think of color differently. And you don't have to be bilingual or multilingual to um, understand that example. You can be monolingual. And if you are maybe a wine connoisseur or a scotch connoisseur, or maybe you are a chef or you work in a perfumery, and you have this uh, rich complex vocabulary to describe maybe the flavor of the wine and the finish and the aroma, you're going to perceive wine very differently than someone that basically thinks, oh, there is white wine and there is red wine. <laughs> and um, and not only will you perceive it differently, but you'll remember things differently. You'll remember subtle differences between different kinds of wine and you'll be able to taste those differences and to differentiate wines. Um your vocabulary will be much richer if you're a chef and you can describe your sauces with different words that someone who's not a foodie doesn't have those words and doesn't uh, remember a subtle difference between two sauces that for you are completely distinct. So these are just some examples in um, how language can direct our attention and, and get us to think about the world around us a little bit differently. And I don't know how much you want to get into it, but if we really think about things at a broader philosophical level about reality, um, it is not too much of an exaggeration to say that our language shapes our perception of reality and how we see the universe around us, how we see our own lives, how we see ourselves. I want to follow up on that, but I want to remind listeners that your book is The Power of Language, and you are a researcher, a professor, as well as author, Viorica Marianne. And you mentioned uh, the choice of words can color um, what, how, how we think about something. For example, you described an experiment where people were told about this event that never even happened. And when they used the word, uh, it was talking about a car, it was in the... Um, description of this event that never happened. And the word smashed was sometimes used and some the word bumped as far as uh, the car. So what did people describe about this event that never happened, but uh, what did they say about this event involving a car? Well, there are different versions of this experiment. Sometimes people would watch the exact same video and then be asked uh, at what speed was the car going when it bumped into the other car? Or at what speed was the car going when it bumped, when it, when it smashed into the other car? Uh, these are ex, uh, experiments in, in language and memory that many people have conducted over the years. And it turns out that people estimate the speed of the car differently, depending on whether you ask them if the car uh, bumped into the other car, into the other car, or hit it, or smashed it. So just changing the one word can influence what people think they remember about how fast the car was going. And this is something we experience on the daily when we listen to politicians, to oh, advertisers, yes. to just language everywhere in our environment. The exact words someone uses can really change what we decide, what we think, how we vote. We, we should remember that people are paid a great deal of money to manipulate language and use language exactly in the way that will help us get the outcome they want to. 
And I use an example in the book of how I used to do that with my own children. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, it's it's a it's a business out there. Well, you um, mentioned this um, way we we are manipulated, and if you're a monolingual, you might be less likely to realize you're being manipulated than multilinguals are. And you say public figures use relabeling to manipulate what we think, and this is, I find, really pervasive, this relabeling by public figures. Oh, of course. And it's not just in the United States. It's everywhere in the world. Politicians all around the world in every country, whether it's democracy, theocracy, uh, in the U.S., whether they are on the left, the right side of the aisle, um, it happens all the time. People relabel um, the relaxed emission standards as the Clear Sky Initiative, or they may um, use the the estate tax would be called the death tax, or it just it's everywhere. It's all the time, and simply knowing that that happens can help you be mindful and notice when you're being manipulated linguistically. Well, George Orwell. Uh, wrote about this in his book, 1984. Unfortunately, I was so young when I read it, it, most of it just went over my head. And now I really see the point that George Orwell was making when he talked about, for example, Newspeak. Oh, yeah. 1984, a famous, uh, famous piece of art and literature that unfortunately now not only... Uh, Art imitates life, but life imitates art because we now see that happening in the real world. So, uh, and, and what George Orwell wrote is he wrote about the society called Oceania that invented a new language where some words were not allowed to be used because uh, the idea was that if you don't have those words, you will not have those thoughts. If you don't have certain words for certain crimes, you would not be able to commit those crimes. And it's a similarity would be like if you don't play chess you don't know that the words queen or rook can have another uh, meaning but in real historical examples that also happens all the time where some words are added or banned or invented or the entire national level um, we could have like in North Korea some words are banned if they are rooted in foreign languages they have a rich English or word word origin, to the point that now sometimes North Korea and South Korea require dictionaries to translate certain words uh, among themselves. And there are other national level experiments that I go into the book. But yes, language is, uh, uh, is used to manipulate opinion very often. Well, uh, public figures, but also advertisers, you mentioned that, that uh, often watch ads with the on mute and watch how they present things. And so they also use language to manipulate us. Now, there was a word that I'm going to watch how I use this word now after reading your book, Verica, and that's the word jiffy. I never <laughs> realized jiffy had a precise meaning. Yeah, the the origins of words is a, a very interesting thing and something I used to really enjoy uh, learning about as a kid, Why, uh, how some words came to be. But yes, jiffy is a, an actual measurement of time that refers to a, a very small uh, uh, time scale, fraction of a second. Um, it, it is very interesting. So I would be hesitant to tell somebody I'll be with you in a jiffy because that's only <laughs> one one hundredth of a second. It's a jiffy. Yeah, correct. <laughs> well, we now uh, use words. Words take their own meaning after some time. And uh, it's lovely and beautiful how language sometimes works. And words take a life of their own, especially in poetry and in other forms of literature. Well, I think you use the word etymology, and I find it fascinating, too. But you also make a joke that it's not entomology, it's yes. etymology. <laughs> So tell us again what etymology is. Uh, well, etymology, so it's one is the science of word meanings and one is the science of bugs. <laughs> and I often say that, uh, you know, it's a, it's a joke that linguists, uh, but, you know, it bugs them when people uh, mix the two. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, um, you mentioned this, uh, I guess we're still kind of on the subject of manipulation that the Soviets changed Moldova's alphabet. thought, my gosh, how disruptive that would be that to go from using the Latin alphabet, the Roman alphabet, letters of the alphabet, to change to the Cyrillic alphabet. And you make the point that Romanian, your first language, 
is the closest language to Latin, but they wanted yes. to manipulate the national identity. Yes, that's how powerful language can be, it, and it's tied to national identity. So Romanian is a romance-based language. It's close to Italian, and uh, it's the closest of the living uh, romance languages to uh, classic Latin, to old Latin. Uh, so, of course, it uses the Latin alphabet. And then during the Soviet years, uh, the population of Moldova uh, had to use a Cyrillic um, the alphabet used by the Russian language in this indirect effort to promote a more pro-Russian, pro-Soviet, pro-Eastern uh, state of mind and, and uh, a more anti-Romanian, anti-Western national identity. So it wasn't until the Soviet Union um, collapsed that the Latin alphabet uh, began to be used again in Moldova. So I grew up using the Cyrillic alphabet and uh, writing in Cyrillic in school. And now a Romanian uses the Latin alphabet once again. Uh, language is tied to politics. And there are, this is a reason why in certain places, some languages are forbidden, are not allowed or discouraged, or um, it's not available for education. It's a really powerful, language has a powerful connection to our national identity and to uh, who we are as a people. My guest is professor, researcher, author, Viorica Marianne. Her book is The Power of Language, how the codes we use to think, speak, and live transform our minds. Now, I, I think people, when they read your book, will be more careful about how they use the word dialect. For example, you say Moldovan is a dialect of Romanian. And a lot of times I think people assume that Chinese is a language that has a couple of dialects, for example, um, Cantonese or Mandarin. But you say, nope. They're not dialects. So how do we distinguish? Yeah, it depends who you ask. Uh, this famous saying by a linguist, uh, Max Weinrich, is uh, a language is a dialect with an army and a navy. So sometimes what determines whether uh, a linguistic variety is a language or a dialect is really the political, economical uh, circumstances, social circumstances of a country. Some languages, so most Americans think of Chinese as a language, where in reality, the varieties of language spoken in China, Mandarin, Cantonese, Hokkien, other varieties as well, uh, are really distinct languages that are quite different from each other. Um, whereas others might actually think that languages that are very different, like uh, French and, and Italian and Spanish, uh, even closer than 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 Mandarin and Cantonese, for example. So um, you see this that play out now uh, on the international stage between, for example, Russian and Ukrainian, and in my case, uh, Romanian and Moldovan. Even though Romanian and Moldovan are essentially the same language, dialects, variations of the same language, they are much more similar Moldovan and Romanian than Russian and Ukrainian. Well, and you tell us that our own founders of our country did not want one official language for the United States. This is something that I learned uh, through research. Of course, I wasn't around when that <laughs> happened, but uh, apparently Thomas Jefferson was uh, uh, a believer that it should be a multilingual nation. He himself spoke multiple languages. Uh, many of our uh, of the American presidents knew uh, multiple languages, classic languages, modern languages. And the United States initially had Dutch colonies, French colonies, Spanish colonies, English colonies. So multiple languages were spoken on the territory uh, of North America, including, of course, the many indigenous uh, languages of the population of uh, North America. So... Uh, it's been a historical change where it is now um, predominantly a monolingual nation, although a lot of people in the United States speak more than one language. Is there anything, uh, Professor, that you would like us to know to leave us with parting remarks? I would uh, say that if you are interested in another language and are thinking about uh, learning another language, you should most definitely give it a try and not be discouraged and, and think that it's this difficult task because you don't have to be perfect at it to begin to reap the benefits and to enjoy it. So if you choose a language that you are interested in for 
whatever personal reason you may be interested in. Maybe you want to go to that country. Maybe you have a relationship with someone who speaks that language. Maybe your family has a background where that language was spoken. Maybe you like telenovelas or, or movies or music in that language, whatever the reason it is. Um, if there is a reason why a language is of interest to you, there are so many ways to learn it. Uh, there are apps now that make it fun, almost like a game where you get rewarded, you get all these badges, and um, it can become a fun game. And uh, Or you can learn it by trading language lessons with another person online or, or in person. And you can begin to reap all these benefits that we've considered today um, in a relatively short duration of time after just three months you can see changes to your brain and um, it can be an enriching personal activity that um, uh, will enrich your life and in, in in a way would be a gift you give yourself uh, it's never too early or too late to start learning another language and it can even be fun thank you professor i remind people that uh, my guest has been Viorica marianne her book is the power of language how the codes we use to think speak and live transform our minds. Thank you, Professor. Thank you so much for having me. It was my pleasure to talk to you today. After a break, I will be talking to NPR journalist Steve Drummond, who has written a book about Harry Truman. You're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. I'm Nancy Wigman. I'm Nancy Wigman, and you're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. What role did Harry Truman play in winning World War II? That's the question explored by NPR journalist Steve Drummond. He's been a reporter with newspapers in Florida and the Associated Press in Michigan. He's written for many publications, including the New York Times. He has been a senior editor at National Public Radio in Washington for more than 20 years and also teaches journalism at the University of Maryland. Steve Drummond has now written the story of how a little-known junior senator fought wartime corruption and in the process set himself up to be vice president and ultimately president Harry Truman. The title of Steve Drummond's book is The Watchdog, How the Truman Committee battled corruption, and helped win World War II. Steve Drummond, welcome to Nancy's Bookshelf. Hi, Nancy. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Well, you know, you chose to write a book about somebody who was once called a political nobody. So what was your motivation for writing about Harry Truman? Yeah, it was kind of a long journey to get to the story, but uh, some years ago I wrote a magazine article about Detroit during the war and the contribution on the home front. And while I was doing that, I stumbled across some references to the Truman Committee and how this unknown senator was going around the country checking up on whether the taxpayers' money was to be spent wisely. And I kind of, you know, with a journalist's eye, I thought, wow, I think there's a story here. Well, I don't think many people have even heard of the Truman Committee. And uh, what gave him the idea to even, well, who created this committee? What was it? It was Truman himself. And as a World War I veteran, a military man, Truman had watched after the war. There were something like 100 investigations into war spending after the war when there was kind of no point in it. Truman had the idea early in 1941, why don't we investigate this giant spending program while it's happening? And we can kind of hold the military and hold the defense companies' feet to the fire and make sure they're picking the best equipment and weapons, making sure they're not making ridiculous profits on their contracts with the government. And so it was pretty much Truman's idea. And he took a little tiny appropriation from Congress 
and turned it into this very powerful investigating committee. So here was a guy who he was even turned down for World War One because of his bad eyesight. So how did he manage to become a part of World War One? He cheated on the eye exam is the best <laughs> example. Truman had joined the National Guard and worked his way up, and then he had resigned. And when war broke out, he tried to he rejoined the National Guard, and yes, he completely faked his way through the eye exam, and then um, he was chosen to be the captain of his uh, of his unit, an artillery unit. Well, you have done a tremendous amount of research, and some of the figures were just staggering how this this country going through a depression went from zero to 100 in, in such a short time. Uh, what were some of the statistics that shocked you, if you were shocked? Yes. Um, uh, the, the one that jumped out to me is that when— War broke out initially in 1939, two years before the United States would get into the um, war. The United States Army was ranked in size, 17th in the world behind Romania. So Franklin <laughs> Roosevelt and others knew that eventually the United States would get uh, drawn into the war and that the United States was woefully unpre unprepared. Millions of people would need to go into the service. Millions, you know, hundreds of thousands of airplanes and tanks and trucks and all kinds of other equipment would be needed. And and during the Depression and in the in the sort of demobilization after World War One, very little was spent on the military. And everyone knew the United States would have to get ready and get ready real fast. And in all of that spending, what Truman I did, realized was some of that money was going to get wasted. Some of it was going to end up in the pockets of big companies, or some of it would just get lost through inefficiency or mismanagement. And that's what the Truman Committee set out to correct. So here's this man that, and you quote in your book, that had for years been all but ignored by the media, even in his home state. So how did that change once he uh, created this committee? So a lot of it was Truman's own doing. He, uh, as you say, he had been virtually unknown in Washington for six years. He'd barely um, made a splash in terms of bills or initiatives or leadership. This, With this little committee, he set out to do a few things not to seek headlines or sort of enhance his own personal reputation, not to embarrass the military or the Roosevelt administration, the administration of his own party. And he set out to have a bipartisan approach. That was one of the key factors. There were two Republicans on the committee and five Democrats. Truman took great care to make sure that they were all involved. He showed it's fun to um, watch him growing into the job, as I read through the documents, where he's— um, He's sharing authority. He's not taking all the limelight. He's doing a lot of things that you would probably say, oh, that was pretty smart. He was inventing it on the go. And and within two or three years, they put out these reports that were considered fair. They were uh, telling the American people stuff that they hadn't heard anywhere else. And they were doing it in an honest fashion. And that really drew, by not seeking media attention, Truman seemed to get lots of it. Well, you'd think, here's this guy doing such good work that the president— President Roosevelt would take notice, did he? Almost not, barely is the best answer to this. Truman had only met Roosevelt in six years in the Senate. Truman had barely met Roosevelt two or three times. Um, Franklin Roosevelt initially was not wild about a senator, an unknown senator from his own party, poking his nose into the administration's business and probably being critical of it. Having said that, Top leaders in the Democratic Party quickly realized that if a Democrat didn't do it, then the Republicans would. And so Truman was seen as a bit of a safety valve to prevent a Republican attacks on the party for the <coughs> <coughs> excuse me, Republican attacks for the party for the defense buildup. And so Truman got a little a window and uh, he had a little loophole and he drove right through it. Well, I thought it was rather amusing that uh, Roosevelt, the night before Truman's report comes out the first year, mm -hmm. uh, Roosevelt did take notice. What did he do? Yeah, so all around Washington in 1941, it was clear that the, the administration system Roosevelt had set up to oversee this giant conversion of a civilian private economy to a wartime economy in which somebody was going to have to decide how many tanks were going to get built. And somebody was going to decide, does steel go to shipbuilding or does it go to tanks or does it go to gun makers? All of this was going to have to be managed. And it was kind of acknowledged that it was kind of a mess. Roosevelt 
did not like to share power. He did not like to give the limelight to all one person. So there was this multi-headed system. It was clear that this system was a mess. Truman was a very smart politician. Several, as you point out, several days before his report came out, he took it over to the White House and said, hey, Mr. President, you know, this is coming out. Roosevelt wisely got out in front of it. He dismissed the leaders of the organization that he had put in place and announced the day before Truman's committee came out a completely new system. So from Truman's point of view, he was perfectly willing to let Roosevelt take the credit. He got what he wanted. The war effort would be run better. And Truman did not uh, end up, you know, in the doghouse with the president. My guest is NPR journalist Steve Drummond, and he has written a book, The Watchdog, How the Truman Committee Battled Corruption and Helped Win World War II. This, I think, would rather surprise me, the role that Truman played, because I think the most some of us knew about, well, he was a failed haberdasher, <laughs> and that's about it. And uh, I was really pleasantly surprised at the role that Truman played. And um, weren't, you, weren't there things that surprised you? Oh, very much so. And I've read many books about uh, Truman, David McCullough's wonderful biography. Oh, yes. But, but in that book, the Truman Committee gets about one chapter. It's three crucial years in Truman's life. And so I knew virtually nothing about this. And I, when I started poking around into it, it just, one, Truman's kind of dedication and his inspiration really comes out. It, to me, was very surprising the response he got from the American people. Truman ran on the radio early on and said, hey, Americans, we need your help. If you see something funny going on down at the factory or over at the shipyard, drop us a note. Uh, you know, write to me in Washington, D.C., and darned if people all over the country by the thousands wrote in to say, hey, Senator Truman, you're doing a good job. Or, hey, Senator Truman, check out steel production. Something's, you know, something's not right. Or in one case, an airplane engine factory in, in uh, Ohio where the inspections were being fudged and bad engines were going out to the door and being delivered to the military. And so Truman got lots of letters from this factory, sent some investigators out, and they did a big report and corrected the problem. So it was really inspiring to me to see how the, the public responded to Truman. Well, one thing that surprised me was the losses due to German U-boats. I had no idea how what destructive uh, uh, force they were at the start of the war. What did uh, the committee decide they could do about this destruction of Germany? What were, what were the U-boats destroying principally? Very much so. So after the Nazi invasion of France and the, German, the, the Germans controlled most of Europe, only Great Britain for some time stood alone. And the only way that Great Britain could survive was from supplies and equipment sent from the United States, even food. And so merchant ships were sailing back and forth across the Atlantic and waiting for them in the Atlantic were German U-boats, submarines that were sinking these ships at a frightening uh, rate. The Truman Committee stepped in, and one of the ways the committee stepped in, and one of the roles they played throughout the war, was to let the American people know how badly things were going. The news of the shocking number of ships being sent to the bottom by the Germans were largely kept quiet by the military, and the Truman Committee published the actual numbers of how many ships being sunk. At that point, the Germans were sinking ships faster than the United States could build them. So the Truman Committee was a huge advocate and spent a lot of hearings trying to improve efficiency and improve the speed by which ships could build. But also, they served this purpose of letting the American people know the honest truth about what was going on. That was one of the things that, again, the public really responded to and really made the Truman Committee um, seemed like they were looking out for, for the interests of everyday Americans. And here comes the idea of a helicopter on the scene. <laughs> oh, that was, there's so many things in your book that I think people will really enjoy reading. And I think it provokes conversations at home because I, after reading your book, I started asking friends, what role did your parents play during World War II? And that turned out to be very fascinating. So uh, thank you for writing this book, Steve. Oh, my pleasure. And it's funny. I have the same thing. My grandparents worked in war plants in Detroit. They left Tennessee and moved up north during the war to get these jobs. And they worked in some of the factories I wrote about in the book. So that was a great pleasure to me, too, in writing the story. The title again of Steve Drummond's book, The Watchdog, How the Truman Committee Battled Corruption and Helped Win World War II. Thank you, Steve. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it, Nancy. I would also like to thank my first guest, Viorica Marianne, 
who is a language researcher and author of The Power of Language. And next we have a segment we call The Writer's Room, and it features writers from around the North State. Hi, I'm Lorna McLeod. This is my poem, The Founders. The Founders. How many are they, the Founders? Countless, unknown, never to be called by name. Living the force, living the change. How many, the Founders? Who have they been? Who are they now, the Founders? A thousand years from now, who will inherit this earth? Will the Founders still be here? Will they have gone? Will this fragile world still be of value to them? Who the inheritors? Beyond what even we, the present founders, can imagine, an even newer age, a newly visioning metaphysics, who will the founders be? Will we come back in body renewed? Or spirits returned in some other way we now don't understand? When we have founded, lived in artistry, will we cease to exist, or will we simply and elegantly change? Now to found a world of change, a world of elegance and artistry, of ease, let us embrace the fear, the crises, becoming one in strength and power, changing our loving, changing our world. Like light is held, for Robert. Today the woodpecker looks for life in the dead sycamore. I sing rhymes my baby understands are meant for him, voice high as tall stemmed glasses raised in celebration. I love him like he loves wind and leaves, beholding miraculous limbs, the mystery of his own two hands. He is earth after rain, bloom after seed, thistle before the sting. They say a baby doesn't know where his body ends and the world begins. What if it never ends? What if we are of the earth long before we are ashes? I hold him like light is held in rainbows, whose promise is the end isn't real, but a trick of the eye, a pot of gold I'd forfeit to wish upon stray lashes and kiss thighs fat and rich as all our gods combined. This is Emily Grelly. For more information on the writers you've just heard, go to mynspr.org and click on the poetry link. You've been listening to Nancy's Bookshelf, a production of North State Public Radio. You can find this and other episodes of Nancy's Bookshelf on our website, mynspr.org. Dot org.